You are listening to First in Human, where we interview industry leaders and investors to learn about their journey to inhuman clinical trials. Presented by Vile, a tech-enabled CRO. Hosted by co-founder Andrew Bracken. With episodes launching weekly on Tuesdays and Thursdays. For episode 27, we sit down with Sean Bowen, CEO of Olima Oncology. Stay tuned to learn what the future of personalized cancer treatment holds and learn how Olima is helping to address the disparity in available care for women. This is First in Human. I'm Andrew Bracken, the co-founder of Vile. Vile is a tech-enabled CRO that offers faster and more efficient trials for biotech companies. And today we're here with Sean Bowen, the CEO of Alima Oncology, which is a biotech company in oncology. And so, Sean, great to meet you. Tell us a little bit about Olima. Thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here. Olima is a biotech company that is focused on the treatment of cancers occurring primarily in women. And our lead clinical candidate, OP1250, is a complete estrogen receptor antagonist, which is focusing on estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, which is by far the most common subset of breast cancer, with breast cancer being the second most common cancer diagnosis in the world. Tell us more about OP1250 and how it differs from other therapies that are available today for ER-positive breast cancer. So its primary differentiation, it is, as I said, a complete estrogen receptor antagonist. In that respect, when it binds the estrogen receptor, whether it is the wild-type receptor or has been evolving as a more common resistance mutation, the activating mutant receptor, it locks that receptor in a completely inactive conformation. And by doing so, it stops the receptor from its cell growth and proliferation signal that is used by the cancer cells to grow inappropriately. It also has very favorable pharmacokinetics, once daily oral dosing with a quite extended half-life, eight days, and as well, a very favorable tolerability and combinability profile. Finally, it is also a selective estrogen receptor degrader. However, we don't believe degradation is the primary mechanism. We think it's antagonism because all of the degraders leave a significant amount of intact estrogen receptor. And OP1250 has been granted fast-track designation by FDA. Can you explain to us what is fast-track designation and why is it a game-changer for the availability of this drug and your ability to run trials? So the biggest advantage of fast-track designation, obviously, one is that it's an acknowledgement by the FDA that the indication you are seeking, in this case, a fast-track designation is in the second, third-line setting, which would be after a CDK4-6 inhibitor plus an AI or fulvestrant that you had progressed on that. But that indication is an unmet need in order to help make new and better drugs available in that indication, what the FDA does is they give you an opportunity to make the filing process, which is quite arduous, a bit easier in part by being able to file different sections in a rolling fashion. And also they make it easier for you to get interaction with the FDA, which is obviously vitally important when, if you are as we are right now, when you're planning a phase three trial. And so the company today, you're about to run a phase three, is that right? Tell us more about the company. I'd love to learn more. You know, how did you get involved and where's the company at in terms of the, the team and uh, scale? Absolutely. Yes, definitely. So as a company, we're located in San Francisco and in Cambridge, Massachusetts. As I mentioned, our primary clinical asset is OP1250 in ER-positive HER2-negative breast cancer. 
We also do have a, a research program also focused on women's cancers. The company has been in existence for quite some time, but really it was in 2020 when we saw a real uptick in the ability to raise money. And that was because of OP1250's progress toward the clinic. In November of 2020, we took the company public. I joined in September of 2020. And obviously for all biotech companies, that has been a blessing and a curse a bit in this period of time. We were able to raise a significant amount of capital, which has us in a great position now with a good runway and the ability to execute a phase three trial and also to study combinations with CDK4-6 inhibitors. And so we are hoping that the generation of that data will not only create a new medicine for patients, but generate great shareholder value over the coming couple of years. I'd love to learn more about your thoughts on how the biotech industry can work toward reducing disparities in cancer care and treatment for women. I know that's kind of core to your mission and, and would love to hear your thoughts. It's a great question. It's been challenging, not just for biotech, but for pharma in general, and as well for clinical investigation that actually doesn't involve the development of new drugs. I think there are a number of things we can do. One is definitely awareness. By awareness, I mean awareness of clinical trials as an option for treatment, awareness of the disparities that do occur in treatment based on a number of factors, be they race, socioeconomic, geographic. One thing that fundamentally is really challenging to address and that we need to find a more effective way to address it is trust. The clinical investigation history in the United States and really other places throughout the world does not engender trust. And I think that there needs to be some very, very directed effort. This is across patient advocacy groups, pharma partners, biotechs, public health agencies to educate and engender trust on why it's a good thing and why it is a safe thing to participate in clinical research. A few years ago, there was an analysis done on participants in clinical trials. The analysis showed that the outcome of patients participating in clinical trials was superior to the general population. That was true also in the control arm. So if you were receiving what was then the standard of care, not the investigational agent, you were having a better outcome. And it probably has to do with the level of rigor with which clinical trials are being conducted. And I think we need to use things like that to try to help people understand that there are advantages to participating in clinical trials, even beyond the ability to access a potentially more effective new agent. One challenge that we see, and I'd love your thoughts on, is that the investigators behind these trials are also not very representative of the real physicians that are going to be prescribing these, these medications and helping patients, right? And so we've seen that when we're running a trial, all of the biggest sites are generally you know, skewed toward men and more Caucasian investigators. How do you think we change that? And why do you think that's important to making clinical trials more accessible and representative? Yeah, absolutely. It has to do with availability of the clinical investigation to a large extent. That's a very complex one because it has problems in it that definitely go to your question about disparity. But it has a broader concern in it as well, which is that the participation in clinical trials for adults in the United States, adults with cancer, I'm speaking specifically about now, is really quite low. Most of the treatment occurs in a community oncology setting where you have two things going on. You know, one, not a high motivation to participate in clinical trials because it's a lot of work and it takes some infrastructure. 
I would say beyond that, also the pressures of clinical practice are so complicated to start with. Then when you go back in a community setting and say, hey, let's add some more stuff that you have to worry about by managing a clinical trial and a protocol, et cetera, that really becomes a bit of a disincentive. So I think simplifying the clinical trials, increasing the awareness. I would say in terms of the diversity, that is absolutely true. It is a longer term problem. I will say that we have a great representation of extraordinary women oncologists and clinical investigators in our trials. So progress there is quite recognizable. Some of the other aspects of diversity, diversity of geographical location, a community versus a academic setting, racial diversity, those things, much slower to change. There's been great consolidation in the world of oncology. And so thinking about how we can tap into these community settings, I think is, is going to be important. But obviously the chicken and the egg, right? You made a great point about the sites needing infrastructure. I and mean, these community sites likely lack the infrastructure that a large academic setting has. And so an interesting challenge, one we think about a lot at Vion. Not quite sure how to solve today, but I think the idea that more patients in the community setting should be seen is really important. It's interesting that you would think technology would help here. My observation through years in big pharma and now in biotech is what we've done with technology is we've just used it largely to make trials more complicated. So while it is true that technology can make things more efficient, when you instead say, hey, we can add this in and that in and all these different aspects of trial conduct, actually you have a paradoxical effect, which is that technology doesn't make things simple. It just means that more things are collected. It can actually be more arduous for the patient and the investigator. I think that's a great point. Our business is all about building technology for sponsors and making trials more efficient. We have a vision for the way that trials should work. And today it feels like there's like a huge disconnect from that vision. So the way we're thinking about it is building technology that makes the life of a CRC, a CRA on the sponsor side of the sponsor easier and giving them superpowers, right? So much of that time today, as we know, there's a huge shortage of talent in this field. It's an incredible challenge. And so the more you can give them that time back, the better. And I think one of the challenges with CROs today, and I can say this because you know I work for a CRO and other CROs are a competition, I think there's a disconnect where they're not really incentivized to be more efficient. And so with our business model, we're using technology, we've designed a business model that encourages us to be more efficient. Going back to Alima, how are you thinking about engaging patients and patient advocacy groups? You're obviously in a very specific area of oncology, and I'm sure you've spent a lot of time thinking about this problem. It is specific, but it's big. I mean, that, that's the interesting aspect of it. PR positive breast cancers, 75% of breast cancer in the US alone, over 300 breast cancer diagnoses in the United States. So you can just amplify that throughout the world. Patient advocacy groups are a very useful mechanism to, one, communicate the potential of a new therapy like OP1250 but also very importantly to gain the perspective of breast cancer patients who in one case, obviously are clinical trial subjects, but in another case, obviously are the people who we hope to benefit from this and who will be taking this new therapy provided we are successful. And so their perspective is extremely valuable in terms of what are they thinking about? What are they looking for? What are barriers to them? So we're using that interaction in two ways. One is to educate about what we're trying to do and why we think it provides a meaningful new therapeutic option and how we will prove that. 
but then also to understand what kinds of data might we generate, what kinds of endpoints might we incorporate that actually are meaningful to patients whose lives are affected by this. And obviously, with such a common indication, almost everyone's life in some way or another is touched by this disease because if it's not the individual themselves, then we all have mothers and aunts and possibly sisters, et cetera, et cetera, who may have been affected by this. One percent of cases are men. That occasionally happens as well. So there's a wealth of information. There's a wealth of perspectives. It is a challenge organizing it in a way that's usable. What do you think the future of cancer treatments look like? I know we've made a ton of progress in the last 10 years, and it's incredibly exciting, some of the new, new developments we've seen in the field. There's an advent of precision medicine and personalized therapies. How do you think those will play into this market? Yeah, we're already seeing the precision medicine play into the market. We have it a little bit where we are. Arguably, the estrogen receptor is the oldest identified validated molecular target. Tamoxifen was approved in 1977. And obviously, characterizing breast cancer by hormone receptor expression status, HER2 expression status has been going on for decades now. But what we've seen is throughout therapies, evolution into even more subsets, right? And usually these are specific molecular markers, oftentimes specific gene mutations, as we have with the ESR1 activating mutations. So I think we'll continue to see identification of those things and then also where the science makes plausible attempts to target them for therapeutic benefit. So that will just continue to go. And obviously, that is a very complicated thing. It has diagnostic modalities. Ours is DNA sequencing. It's probably the simpler end, but there are much more complex ones that are being used. Certainly, regulatory interactions and, and you know, what do those mean? Practice patterns, how do they change? Reimbursement patterns, how do they change? Underneath that, I think uh, what you'll see is the war on cancer declared, you know, in the 1970s has actually played out. Not as quickly as the people who started it wanted it to, but taking apart what might have been a bit of irrational optimism, now what we're seeing in terms of the evolution of cancer care, both in terms of efficacy and increased tolerability of therapies, is truly remarkable. Even in my career as an oncologist, it is amazing to look at how treatments across many areas have evolved. The fact remains, though, that there are some diseases that just remain truly terrible where we still need to be able to find a foothold and make progress. We spoke earlier about raising money at a great time and timing is everything. What advice do you have to biotech CEOs that are building today and dealing with this challenging market, hopefully with exciting companies and a lot of great science to be commercialized? How would you advise them in this challenging time? Well, first of all, I would say good luck because it is a very difficult market right now. And I think it is reasonable to say there was an irrational exuberance in biotech markets in possibly 2020 going into 2021. That has vastly overcorrected in the irrational pessimism direction. And it's pretty broadly applied, unfortunately. The problem you have is, one, I would say, make sure you can really tell your story. What we do is extremely complicated. If you want to go out and say why this is some simple technology and it's going to change your life, you know, when you download the app, we can't do that. We have a lot of very complicated ideas that we have to convey. So really refining that message so that you can get it across to a broad audience is vitally important. The other thing I would say is be very realistic about your goals versus your resources. If you get 
overextended, you may run into a situation where you just don't find a reasonable alternative to access more capital. And that puts companies in the position, and we are seeing this, right? We see this every day as we read the press relevant to our industry. We're seeing people having to shut down, having to stop. Now, some of those probably, that's okay. This is a risky business, and it's normal process where people find out that, hey, we thought the science was going to lead us in this direction, and it just hasn't played out. I am really afraid, and I think we're seeing some evidence that we're also losing really meaningful potential advancements by virtue of this capital crunch. So I would say be very careful about how you manage your capital. It's great advice. Sean, thanks so much for the time today. This was uh, an enlightening conversation, and I really enjoyed it. So I appreciate it, and I wish you the best of luck with Olima. It sounds like an incredibly exciting company that has an exciting phase three trial ahead of it. Great. Thank you, Andrew. I really appreciate it. And good luck with Vile as well. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, and Google 